All right. We're going to change gears a little bit. Um, we have Dr. Douglas Bruce here. Uh, Dr. Bruce is the Cornell Scott, Chief of Medicine at Cornell Scott Hill Health Center and Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine at Yale University. He has expertise and interest in the intersection of substance abuse and infectious complications, in particular HIV and Hep C and other infectious complications, and how we might be able to mitigate those complications with treatment of drug abuse comorbidities. So we're very excited to have you here today. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you to the organizers and everyone for staying around on a very sunny afternoon. It's great to be in Los Angeles. In New England, it is 33 degrees and cloudy. So it's very nice to see that the sun still exists somewhere in the world. So uh, where I come from, opiates are a big deal. I think they probably are in California as well. You may not be as concerned about people running around injecting heroin. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. We'll find out. But we do know that there's a huge problem with prescription opioids. And we do know that within HIV clinical settings, people have more pain, and oftentimes people are prescribed opioids. So my hope is that uh, we can talk a little bit about substance abuse generally, something that we all deal with our patients, and then we'll focus a little bit more on opioids themselves. But if you have any broad questions as we go through this conversation, I'd be interested to talk more in the question and answer time. So I have no disclosures, other than I think that we should treat everybody the same. Oh, I'm hitting the wrong button. There you go. I followed Tim's example and did not listen to the how one is supposed to do this. And I turned it off. All right. We are teachable. <laughs> so hopefully you'll learn something. All right. I'm learning something. All right. So our first question. According to the CDC, how many people died of an opioid overdose in the United States in 2016? You want me to do this? All right. There is no other option. Yes, Bictagravir is not the answer. <laughs> All right. I don't want to say yay because this is a horrible thing, but yes, correct, uh, indeed. Overdose is the leading cause of accidental death. You know, it used to be accidents and car wrecks. There used to be concerns about homicide, but it's opioids. Oh, I pressed the button correctly. So opioids are a global phenomenon. So you may or may not be aware of, but we started methadone programs in East Africa, for example. So we've got four methadone programs in Tanzania. There are two going on three in Kenya. Mozambique's looking to do methadone. South Africa, Nigeria, Senegal. You name it. Uh, there are drug problems globally, and opioids are a predominant one. And wherever there are opioids, people tend to find that the most efficient route to get drugs into your body is through injection. Right? If you smoke it, there's all this stuff out there that you wish you could collect. If you sniff it, it just gets stuck in your nose and you sneeze it out. And if you chew it, it winds up being gross and takes too long to do anything. Right? So people eventually find that injection is the right way to do things. The problem with injection is what? 
all the infectious diseases that you can get through the route of injection. Right? So when we talk about addiction, and this is not just for opioids, but this is for any substance use disorder, we talk about a behavior that's reinforcing, that's pleasurable, it's rewarding. Right? No one's addicted to the unpleasurable. Right? If there is anyone like that, please, I never want to meet that person. That's a scary phenomenon. Right? But we become addicted to the things that are enjoyable, which is why it's so difficult to say to someone, just stop. Right? Because of the second point, there's a loss of control. Right? The whole idea of being addicted to a substance is that your ability to self-regulate that substance consumption is compromised. So if you tell someone just quit, and they're able to just quit, they don't meet the definition of being addicted. Right. Now, why do people take drugs in the first place? And we usually fractionate this out in two big pots. One is to feel good, the other to feel better. Now, I deal with a biased sample. My patients predominantly are victims of sexual violence, physical violence, and they tend to, in the feel better category, are using drugs as a way to lessen their anxiety, a way to numb their brains so that they're not having to, on a daily basis, re-experience the trauma that they've been subjected to. Right? Which is why I think it's always so important as we work with individuals who have substance use disorders is that we make sure not to re-victimize them, right? to make sure that we're as empathic as we can be with these individuals who are suffering. They're using drugs as a means to self-medicate, to feel better. And oftentimes when they come into a healthcare environment, they're going to feel judged. The doctor thinks I'm a bad person. Right? My partner thinks I'm a bad person, that's why he hits me. Right? So we have to be very careful in the language we use. But oftentimes people are coming into the environment doing drugs because they're trying to feel better. Now the question is, lots of people do drugs. Right? You ever been to a college campus? There are a lot of people doing drugs. But not everyone becomes addicted. Otherwise, no one would graduate. Right? So why do some people become addicted? Now, Michael Brown, who won this little Nobel Prize right, for this thing called LDL cholesterol, once told me that everything in science is on this continuum. I haven't found anything that isn't on the continuum. If you can help me find something, I'd be very happy. Right? Can anybody think of anything? Down syndrome, trisomy 21, right? That's purely genetic, right? No, it's affected by maternal's mother's age, right? Mom's age, older age, higher probability. There's an environmental component. So everything in the world tends to have some genetic, some environmental component. And what does that mean for our substance users? When we say alcoholism is hereditary or genetic, sure. But if you're from some dry county in Arkansas, right, maybe you aren't going to become an alcoholic unless you learn how to make moonshine. Right? So you have to have an environmental insult. For most of my patients, they may have a genetic predisposition, but there's something that's happened in life. And it could be a, a traumatic event. It could be something else. But it's this combination. And why is that important? Well, that's important as we start talking about treatment. Because treatment is, uh, must address cause, and cause is multifactorial, we don't want to just say, okay, you have a genetic predisposition, so it's just medicine, right? Everything that we do in the substance use world is a combination of pharmacology, let's do some medication, but also therapy, 
right, having to address root causes. So if you don't learn anything today, this is the big thing here, right? Drugs take over a lot of very basic brain circuitry and realign motivational priorities. When someone sniffs a bag of heroin, they set off the same neurobiological cascade in the brain that an orgasm does. Now, if you ask a heroin addict to compare orgasm to heroin, they always say heroin's better. I've not done a controlled study on this, but I tend to believe the reports. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because people engage in risk for sex, right? We've talked a lot about that today. But what happens when you've found something better than sex? You will also engage in lots of risk, lots of risk. And so when you sit down with someone and say, you know, drugs aren't good for you, what does a person say? Yeah. You know, you, know, you might hurt yourself doing drugs. Yeah. You could overdose and die. Mm-hmm. Are you going to quit? No, you got five bucks, right? <laughs> That's not because substance users lack intelligence. Some of the smartest, most creative people I've ever met are substance users. It's because how they're thinking about problems is going to change. So when we talk about regimens in my world, I'm always thinking about something as simple as possible, not because my patient is incapable of the complex, it's because his or her motivational priorities are different. And I have to, if I, you got to do a BID regimen, and now wait, I got to think about this, but I've got this, and my sole priority today is heroin's half-life is six hours, and I need a plan, how am I getting the cash to get the next fix? The whole life revolves around that. So, you know, this is not the first opioid crisis, right? We are all, I hope we're all aware of this. This, I keep hitting the wrong button. Thank you, you're saving me. Scott here is going to save my life. I'm going to step back from the podium slightly to avoid the temptation to press the button. This is from uh, Vincent Dole. Dole is an endocrinologist at Rockefeller. Marie Nicewander was a psychiatrist. Mary Jean Creek is still at Rockefeller. And... There was an opioid crisis in New York City. Heroin, heroin was the leading cause of death right, uh, among young people. And Vincent Dole was tasked with this, you need to find a solution to heroin. So they went through a lot of things, but one of the things they started looking at was the natural history of being a heroin addict. So excuse the language, this is from 1966. Uh, straight in the middle there just meant that the person was neither high nor sick, has no other implications. When people are using to the far left, the little tick marks at the bottom are the frequency of heroin use. So you can see that early on in addiction, early on in the use of heroin, the person is experiencing euphoria, which typically people call being high. Now that euphoria, again, causes a dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens, better than sex. So you can imagine that if you have on-demand instant orgasm, like think about marketing that, right? That'd be a really easy marketing campaign. We'd be flooded, right? Everybody would want that. So when people have access to that, it's great. Do it as much as you can, as often as you can, have fun. But over time, you develop tolerance. That same bag of heroin is ineffective. And that's because the brain has changed, everything's downregulated, 
Now I've got to do more. That's the second frame there. Now I'm just trying to use to avoid the sickness. And people will engage in a lot of risk to avoid sickness. I was doing outreach on the streets of New Haven with a, an outreach worker. We had this woman come up who asked the Yale employee, she completely ignored me, but asked the, the outreach worker uh, if he would pay her 10 bucks for a blowjob. And he's standing there, he's you know a new employee, he's got his little lanyard there with Yale University on it. And he says, um, we're actually out here doing outreach. Uh, maybe we could help get you into treatment. I'm thinking, yeah, this is a good, we're going the right direction. She says, five bucks? <laughs> so she and she, they kept going. She went the wrong direction. Eventually she got in a car and, and went off to earn money and we were unable to engage her in care. But the key here is that her motivational priority was getting cash to get a fix to get better because she was sick. So a lot of risk happens relative to sexual risk and drug acquisition in this sick phase. Right? You're more willing to use a syringe that someone else has used. You're more willing to do a lot of risky things. But at some point, you want to get that euphoria again, and that's an overdose. I did it again. Old habits die hard. Don't touch anything. Step away from the podium. So one of the things that we have to think about, right, this is going way, way, way back to 1993. In the last century, Dave Metzger was looking at people who inject drugs, and those individuals were engaging in a fair amount of risk. They could get people onto methadone. People weren't giving people HIV therapy. There wasn't a lot of things to do in, in the early 90s, obviously. And something that you can find very obvious and very quickly here is you've got a huge disparity between the individuals who got on methadone maintenance and their drop in HIV acquisition versus those individuals that did not get onto methadone. It's a huge, there's a huge difference, right? We don't have to do complicated statistics to look at 22% versus 3.5%. Now, I always get people ask me, so why isn't it zero, right? But you guys are all experienced enough to know why it's not zero. People have sex, right? So methadone's not going to keep people from having sex. And people inject other drugs. So in the 90s, in Philadelphia, where the study was conducted, people were also injecting a fair amount of cocaine, right? So methadone, what is called methadone is magic, right? I think I'm discordant. That's, well, we, we've been there. That's great. Let's go with it. All right, so one of the questions that I was asked in conversation to have here is, well, what do you do with a substance user who doesn't want to quit? Anybody ever have to deal with that? Yeah, just a little bit, right? I had a patient tell me once, look, I just won't talk about crack with you, Dr. Bruce, because I'm just not going to quit. All right, that's okay. All right, we'll find something else to talk about, all right? So one of the things that you need to really think about, and, and I'll tell you that when we talk to people about the trans-theoretical trans model of change uh, and motivational interviewing, CBT, and these other things, these are day-long courses or week-long courses to really get an idea of how do you do motivational interviewing. But some of the real key concepts here are the first and foremost is to understand that when people approach or when you're talking to individuals, 
they may be in a different stage of change than you think they are. And the key to intervention is to meet people where they are, not where you want them to be. Right? I know that sounds pretty basic, but that's, that's a key thing here. One of the big missteps I see in clinical care is when the patient is pre-contemplation or in denial. Right? I don't think I have a problem. Anybody ever met a patient like that? You know, a lot of patients that my drinking is not a problem, right? Yet, and it clearly is, right? It's clearly an issue. So how do you address that? How do you help someone who has pre-contemplation address the fact that they have a problem that they don't see in themselves? And for pre-contemplation, for those patients that you have coming in with that situation, the key is to try and bring in evidence from the outside, something that's non-negotiable, so I can think of my patients who would say, I don't have a problem, and I would say, whenever I sit down with patients, I'll, we'll look at the monitor together, and they can see their labs, and we'll have a conversation about it. And I'll say, okay, well, you don't think there's a problem. But, you know, we haven't been able to achieve an undetectable HIV viral load. What's going on there? Could, you know, that nip that you had this morning on your way in to see me that I can smell, and we're not going to light a match in the room for fear of flame, Right? Could that have something to do with why you're not achieving an undetectable viral load? So for a lot of my patients who are involved with, you know, their children have been taken, they're on probational parole, there's the threat of reincarceration, a big conversation I'll have is, look, you may not think that there's a problem, but there's a growing body of evidence outside of you that is concerning. Right? Things keep changing. Okay. I was going to say, I didn't do it. This is the one time I didn't do it. It becomes very important to try and bring in other evidence, and that could be other family members or other people, but it's very difficult. And one of the things that you have to do is be incredibly patient. The person is not dumb, right? Their lack of awareness is not because they're not smart enough to figure it out. Pre-contemplation is a self-protective mechanism. You are psychologically not ready to address this huge issue, and so you've buried it down deep. And you really have to have an external something break into your life and open your eyes. And until that happens, it becomes very difficult. And so one of the things that we oftentimes have to do is work with the patient independent of their awareness to try to create the supports to help them do well. Now that's pre-contemplation. Everything else is much easier, right? Contemplation, I'm thinking about changing. Determination, I want to do it. Let's create an action plan. We're going to make it. Everything in the world, you know, we wind up with relapse at some. I've never met a perfect person, right? People relapse. And then there's the maintenance of behavior change. This is true, and this model was not developed for substance users. This is true for everything you ever wanted to do in medicine, right? Whether it's, I don't want to take prep. I don't have a problem. My partners all have safe sex. I have safe sex. Everything is great and wonderful. No issues, right? Pre-contemplation to, well, we keep talking about this, and I'm starting to think that I, maybe, maybe prep is something that I should be thinking about, to actually want to do prep. Right? But in the relapse stage, it may not be you know, relapsing into substances, but it may be relapse to, you know, I stopped taking it, it just, I didn't get the refill, it didn't fit into my lifestyle. All behavior change, everything, whether it's diabetes, hypertension, HIV adherence, everything follows onto the, cha uh, the stages of change model. Success. So when we think of medication-assisted treatment, um, 
buprenorphine and methadone are the two that we look to most often. Data was discussed earlier this morning from Sandy Springer's study looking at deponaltrexone. It's a specialized population. People have been incarcerated for a fair, you know, fair amount of time and then are being released on a blocker. But for most of our patients that come in, especially those who are actively using, we look to replace the heroin that they're using or the opioids, Oxycontin, Percocet, you name it, with buprenorphine and methadone. This is a, the MRIs at the top, and this is a PET scan below. We're looking at the mu opioid receptor availability. So the kind of top bup00 is no buprenorphine has been given to this patient. And you can see that there's a lot of greens and yellows and reds. And this little red circle in the middle here is the nucleus accumbens. And the nucleus accumbens is that main part of the brain. That's that place that lights up in the brain for orgasm and other things. And you can, I think, not be surprised that that area is saturated in opioid receptors. When we start giving buprenorphine to this person, you see that things start to fade out. Why is that? I always tell my patients, look, your brain's a parking lot. We're filling your brain up with, maybe that's not the best metaphor, but your brain has a parking lot. We're parking buprenorphine in all the parking spaces. When we do that, you use heroin. There's no place for the heroin to park. It's a very basic metaphor, but it's very helpful for patients to understand. So this is a quick question here, and we're using letters, uh, looking at do you have a waiver to treat anyone with an opioid use disorder with buprenorphine? I got a waiver, but I don't do it yet. And then some ranges on patients that you might actually have in treatment. Numbers now? Excellent. No one will get in trouble for their response, I promise. No one is signing up to give buprenorphine out today, I promise. This is just... I'm so glad that no one put Big Tegravir as the answer. So, so most people here don't have a waiver and so can't treat anyone. That's okay, no fault, no foul. I would encourage you to think about it. If you have ever prescribed an opioid or have prescribed one this year, I would encourage you to think about the possibility of getting a waiver because uh, there's always a fair number of people that when they start using opioids could become addicted. And if you have been in the giving out pain medications, you might want to be on giving out the solution to addiction to pain medications as well. So just a thought. So when we look at, again, going back to the Dole and Nicewander uh, paper from many years ago, the M there at the bottom is methadone. Person's given methadone. Methadone, for at least for opioid treatment perspectives, can be dosed once daily. For pain, it must be dosed three to four times a day. But for opioid dependence, it's once a day. If the person uses H, that's the little H there, right, they don't get the euphoria. And again, why? Most of the parking spaces are occupied with the methadone. So we know that methadone can be used to treat opioid use disorders. It is only in opioid treatment programs in the United States and many other programs. You can get it at a pharmacy, like Canada, the UK, other places. Buprenorphine can be office-based. So one thing that we do in our health system is that people coming in for their normal everyday thing can get their buprenorphine as well as their HIV therapy or hepatitis C treatment. 
Naltrexone can also be office-based. Naltrexone does have efficacy in the data as presented earlier, but its retention is inferior to methadone and buprenorphine. When I was starting methadone programs in East Africa, we chose methadone. We did it because methadone is ridiculously cheap. It's about 50 bucks a year to maintain somebody, and it has the highest retention. And when you're trying to do a study that, or not a study, but a treatment program that gets people into care and retains them a long time, methadone was the cheapest, most effective option. Right? And we were dealing with among the female sex workers and injectors we were trying to get into care, 71% of them already had HIV. So we had to get them into care as fast as possible. And that was the most effective way to do it. If you walk off methadone, what happens? Well, if all you've done, we talked about the continuum, remember the genetics and the environment. If all we ever do in life is give people a pill and we don't actually address some of the underlying issues that, uh, that are playing into behavior, then when the pill is gone, people return to the behaviors that they know, right? If someone is a victim of sexual violence and they've used heroin as a way to cover up and forget that sexual violence, they may achieve sobriety and stop injecting, but if they've learned no new coping mechanisms or not been able to address some of that, when the methadone's gone and the flood of trauma comes back, people return to behaviors. And that shouldn't be surprising, and I think it's important that we don't blame our patients when that happens. So one of the things that we need to look at here are some of the best practices in treatment. And um, when we look at some of the key themes, I think it's very important. People whose drugs are infected with HIV have a higher morbidity and mortality. We saw that earlier today in some of the data that was presented that people who inject drugs have, even in the ART era, the worst survival. Right? They do poorly, even to this day. I think it's really important to remember that people who use drugs are still able to take their medications effectively. Um, in my lifetime, people were not given HIV therapy. They weren't given hepatitis C treatment. We're going to hear about hep C treatment. But it's very important to remember that hepatitis C treatment is effective, and we'll hear about that in a moment, but even in people who use drugs. This is a study by Evan Woods and British Columbia, and just showed that even in large cohorts, people who inject drugs are able to take HIV therapy effectively. Right? And when you add in methadone or other supports, people can do extremely well. So it's my plea to all of you to look at substance users and their HIV and hep C treatment opportunities just as you would other individuals and not discriminate against them because of their substance use. It's amazing to me how all over the world people are looking at creative ways to integrate treatment. I was in India for CDC in November, and I was watching as they were giving out buprenorphine for opioid use disorders in Northeast India. They were also giving out Decladisphere and Sofosbuvir, the generics, 120 bucks for the whole regimen, unbelievable, and uh, directly observed therapy, treating everyone's hepatitis C in the context of treating their opioid use disorder. In Tanzania, we've been using methadone for adherence support for HIV and for TB. TB rates in the methadone clinic system are 4,000 per 100,000, which is 40 times higher than the rest of the Tanzanian population. But people come every day for their methadone, seven days a week, and you can give their TB treatment with adherence support. And this is what we've done even in even Little New Haven. So in your packet, I've listed some practical steps uh, for people to think about. These are some standardized questions that you can look at for screening substance use in primary care and in HIV clinical settings. 
I've already mentioned that it's very possible and very practical for our patients to be able to take multiple different medications when given enough adherence support. We also encourage people to think about overdose prevention and becoming uh, someone who prescribes naloxone. If you prescribe any pain medication, you should be prescribing naloxone, all right? And you should be prescribing it widely. There are legal cases that have happened where physicians were prescribing opioids, but were not prescribing naloxone. And so that is a risk management issue, right? Especially in this day and age, to knowingly prescribe opioids that could cause overdose, but not to give the tools of overdose prevention to people can be a real issue from a risk management perspective. And then finally, there are lots of guidelines in your package. You'll have some useful website links from the American Pain Society, the American Academy of Pain. The provider clinical support system, the PCSS, is maintained and is for individuals who are interested in substance use disorders and medication-assisted treatment. And through SAMHSA, you can find out information on buprenorphine training. This past fall, we published the first IDSA clinical practice guideline for the management of chronic pain and chronic non-malignant pain in patients living with HIV. And so this is uh, the online version. I will tell you, it was the most painful thing I've ever had to write in my life. It's about 100 pages of just information about everything that we could really come up with as a panel to try and help people think broadly about this. The big disclosure is there's not a lot of research on how to address a lot of the very important questions that we have. And we've tried to, wherever HIV data was available, utilize that data. Where HIV data was not, we did our best to extrapolate uh, as we thought wise in order to provide people with some idea of best practices and what to do in their clinical environment. And with that, I thank you all for your time and your patience with my technical problems. And if you have any questions, I feel free to entertain them. Thank you so much. And thank you for bailing me out. Thank you. That was really great. Um, just as we're getting uh, the questions together, can I just ask you, you know, many of us are not trained in counseling at, at all. And when you have patients in your clinic who are pre-contemplative about their substance use that is clearly affecting their, their lives, do you have any sort of brief uh, approaches to how to even get people into that cycle and try and progress them? It's a great, great question. So uh, people sometimes wonder, how did I wind up taking care of drug users? And it was, I was working trying to get people to take their HIV therapy, and my cohort was largely drug users, and I wound up spending years learning about drugs and motivational interviewing and psychiatry. And so. I think the most important thing for anyone is to be non-judgmental. Because wherever people are in the stages of change, the first thing a substance user is going to take back from your meeting is, he's talking down to me, he doesn't like me. And when that happens, there is no opportunity for further discussion. So I think before you even worry about the, where is my patient on the stages of change and how do I do my MI techniques, I think the, the most basic thing is don't judge someone. I think we all have our areas of bias and bigotry, right? And so it becomes very important to self-examine what we say, why we say it, and how we say it. So I would say being non-judgmental would be the first and most important. Always good advice. Um, we have a question about what would you say to a primary care provider who categorically refused to prescribe PrEP to someone with a substance abuse problem? 
well, I would be quite upset. <laughs> um, so prep works, right? So we don't want to discriminate based on people's behavior, right? I mean, that's the, the whole point here. And there is data with, you know, prep um, in Thailand among drug users, right? So we, we want to think broadly about prep. And substance users can take medications too. So I would try to educate that provider on the data and encourage the provider to do that, and the provider still refused to do it. I would say, well, send them to me and I'll take care of it. In fact, there are some recent data by David Goodman Meza, who's in the audience today, suggesting that uh, stimulant users, anyway, can adhere to PrEP who, when they have sexual risk. So there are some data to support that you can also tell primary care doctors about. Yep, absolutely. Um, we have some questions about um, much talk about the opioid epidemic in here on the West Coast. We, as you know, have a large stimulant, um, particularly amphetamine epidemic that continues to be uh, uh, affecting large numbers of people. Um, and people are wondering about whether um, there are any new interventions to help stimulant, in particular methamphetamine addicts, um, the way there are for opioids. So, no. People have looked broadly at methamphetamines, whether maintenance with amphetamines daily or modafinil or other stimulants, if that could reduce use. And that those have not been effective. For cocaine users, cocaine use is actually a little easier to treat. There is medication that helps. Disulfiram, which is antabuse, right, blocks dopamine beta-hydroxylase in the brain and so is able to raise basal dopamine levels and helps decrease use. The problem with a lot of these things is adherence. So even in the setting of methamphetamines, even if modafinil worked, the lack of modafinil does not cause withdrawal. The reason methadone works so well is not only does it occupy the receptor, but its absence is very aversive. Right? The worst opioid withdrawal that exists is methadone withdrawal. And because of that, its retention is very high. So unfortunately, outside of that motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral therapy, ways to try to engage in behavior change, there's no pharmacologic treatment uh, at this point. Thanks, I know it's something that we all sort of keep hoping that there's gonna be an intervention for. Uh, a question about uh, the latest formulation of buprenorphine that includes naltrexone in a combination tablet. Um, is this better than buprenorphine by itself? So the buprenorphine combination product is buprenorphine and it has naloxone. That was required by the FDA uh, after concerns that the French, and not the, all of the French, but the French were injecting buprenorphine and there was some concern about its abuse potential. The data among injection and non-injection with the use of naloxone is hotly debated and it is unclear that the inclusion of naloxone reduces the injection of buprenorphine. So I would say, kind of to an earlier insurance question, use what is easily available and approved by an insurance, but you should not feel obligated to use the combination product. It will not improve the probability that someone remains sober. Very helpful perspective. Um, uh, we have uh, a question for you to just comment on the observation that a significant proportion of patients are unable to wean from buprenorphine and methadone. Yep. So this goes to the medication being the only intervention. So when I put people on methadone or buprenorphine, I'll tell patients, 
if you only do methadone, like if, if you don't ever meet with your therapist, if you, so our, our methadone clinic is also a mental health clinic, so it has licensed therapists and it's got like a SWAT team of people that, that deal with trauma and other things. And I'll tell patients, if all you do is methadone, you will be on it for the rest of your life. That there's, you won't get off of this. I mean, if you taper off, you're gonna relapse. But I hope that's somewhat intuitive. If you haven't ever addressed the root cause of the problem, it hasn't gone away. And, and time can help some things heal, but it doesn't fix a lot of things. So for the patient that is struggling to get off methadone or buprenorphine, I would say that's somebody that I would really want to be meeting with, you know, like a licensed clinical social worker therapist, somebody to try and get at the root cause of why can't you get off? It tends to wind up being mostly psychological, I found. And just because we, we like to be provocative here, um, the Surgeon General has recommended that we all carry Narcan to prevent overdoses. What do you think? So it's good that I don't work for the Surgeon General. Um, so in, in my neck of the woods, I will tell you that overdose is so rampant and killing so many young people that I would wind up agreeing with that. I mean, we, we literally, I have a nurse practitioner that I send out to the New Haven Green, because for whatever reason, the Green attracts the homeless drug users, and writes Narcan prescriptions on the Green to people and tries to get Narcan into people's hands. So my response would be, what's the epidemiology in your environment? And so if you're saying like in LA County, five people overdosed from opioids last year, I would say probably not necessary, but, um, we are certainly very concerned in the Northeast about the epidemic of opioid overdose. Then if you're interested in grant opportunities, SAMHSA just said that they're gonna be spending $4 million on grant opportunities this year for people to try and expand access to naloxone in communities that are not currently reached. That was released today, so you guys are ahead of the game. All right, any additional questions for Dr. Bruce? Oh, yes. In a, in, a, in a physician's office? Politics. So the, the U.S. government has taken the posture that methadone is extremely dangerous and must be relegated to isolated clinics. David Filene at Yale did a study um, maybe 10 years ago that showed that patients doing really well on methadone maintenance and opioid treatment programs could be transitioned out of those into a normal primary care office and did ex exceedingly well. And there's been a strong argument that methadone clinics, because they're bringing in people early in recovery and they're mingling with people much later in recovery, that you know the metaphor in NA is it's easier to take someone off the chair and pull them down than it is to bring someone up on the chair with you. So the concern is always, you've got somebody who's been sober for six to nine months in the lobby and they meet somebody who just started methadone today but is now trying to scrounge to get heroin, they're more likely to cause a negative environment and relapse. So. I'll tell you, in the addiction world, we would love to have office-based methadone. But in the current political climate, where we're still struggling to try and get, prevent all of the ACA repeals that are gonna be coming down the pipeline and our patients who won't have access to treatment, um, there are only so many battles. But yes, there's no logical reason other than politics if it's logical. And many countries, such as Canada, as I mentioned, you can just get a script from your GP, go to the pharmacy, get your method, and you're on your way. Yes, absolutely. P part of it's the social, I wrote a paper years ago just on the social marketing of methadone. 
Methadone is this incredibly beneficial medication, but it has been absolutely demonized. And what happened was, in New York City, when they started rolling out methadone maintenance, so I mean, the, the first papers in JAMA were a cure for diacetyl morphine dependence, right? It was this huge deal. We've, we've, New York City is plagued by heroin. We finally have a way to fix this. And it made a splash, and then they did the right thing by trying to address those most at risk. But what that meant is they brought methadone into the prison system through a, a program, Project Heap. And what that did is, in the minds of the world, it associated methadone with poor, homeless, vagrants, every negative thing you can think about in America, right? So, you know, I can't think of any parent who's like, yeah, methadone saved my kid's life. They're like, no, get my kid off methadone. And so until we can fix that view of methadone, we're stuck where we are. Sobering. Pun intended. Pun intended, <laughs> yes. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.